Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with one of my favorite contemporary philosophers of mind, Professor Angela Mendelevici. Professor Mendelevici is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Western Ontario. Her most recent book, The Phenomenal Basis of Intentionality, is making waves in the philosophical community. In this episode, Professor Mendelevici was kind enough to talk to me about the contents of her most recent book. In addition to her view of what's called the phenomenal intentionality theory, we talk about some of her other views in the philosophy of mind, such as her views on panpsychism, where panpsychism is the idea that consciousness exists at the fundamental level of reality and is in a sense ubiquitous or everywhere. And we talk about some other things as well, such as her perspective on moods and emotions, for example. I will embed a link in the description of the episode where you can find Professor Mendelevici's website and a link to her new book, which you all should go out and buy immediately. So, without further ado, I give you Professor Angela Mendelevici. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. So I'm here with Professor Mendelevici. Professor, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I think it's a really cool show. Yeah, of course. Like I said, your work has had a pretty big influence on me. I just Before we kind of jump into the weeds, I just wanted to start with basic question. How did you get into philosophy? And when did you know that this is something you wanted to pursue professionally? Yeah, well, I started off as a, an undergrad um, enrolled in a management program at McGill University, but I dropped out of it immediately after the orientation session, after they told us what they would turn us into or what we would become. Um, I can't remember exactly the words that they used, but I felt like I would, I was, I would be going through a meat grinder or something like that and coming out as minced meat, uh, and it really didn't agree with me. So I right. kind of dropped out immediately on a whim and stayed enrolled in the university, but in no specific program, which was very worrying for my parents, but it was uh, fantastic for me. I took a bunch of classes and ended up getting really interested in the problem of consciousness, uh, which I encountered both in psychology and in philosophy. And then it was a matter of deciding what I wanted to major in so that I could keep working on this problem. And in the end, I chose philosophy uh, because I thought there I would have more freedom to pursue the problem from whatever angle seemed appropriate, so not just from the angle of psychology. Um, and then I guess I never really looked back. Yeah, for me, I found my gateway into philosophy through the problem of consciousness as well. I'm wondering, what particular aspect of consciousness did you find so fascinating? For me, I have always just kind of been viscerally stunned by the reality of consciousness, and I started taking some philosophy classes and learned that this one thing that we're the most intuitively connected within the world. This one thing, the existence of which we can't doubt, is actually still a fundamental mystery, and we don't know what the nature of it is at all. And to me, that was just extremely fascinating because consciousness at some level is all we have. It's all we're directly acquainted with. So was it, I guess you could encapsulate that by saying um, there's this hard problem of consciousness, and that's, that's what really drew me to the study of consciousness. Is it the same for you? Yeah, absolutely the same. Um, I really like the way you describe it. Yeah, there's something that we're really, really familiar with, but we have no idea to explain it, at least 
to explain it in terms of anything else we think we know. So it seemed mm-hmm. like a, a, a true mystery, um, one that I didn't even have the, the, an inkling of what the solution to it would be. Um, so that really drew me to it. And I thought, you know, this is what I want to figure out. This is yeah. what I want to at least work on and try to figure out as much as I can. Yeah, same here. So consciousness cool. is one prominent property that philosophers will study in the philosophy of mind. Another is intentionality. Mm-hmm. So I, I was wondering whether you could just briefly describe these two prominent concepts in the philosophy of mind. And as we'll get into the weeds, we'll see that you think there's a connection between consciousness and intentionality, whereas so many philosophers for a good portion of the 20th century thought that these two properties, consciousness and intentionality, constitute distinct domains of the mental. So before we kind of hone in there and start talking about the relationship between these two properties, I thought you could just define what you mean by these terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Um, so so consciousness, um, in the sense of consciousness in which I'm interested in, is uh, or sometimes called phenomenal consciousness. It's the subjective, qualitative, or felt aspect of mental life. So um, it's it's the the mental phenomenon for which there's uh, a hard problem of consciousness, what David Chalmers calls a hard problem. Um, uh, so here's here's some examples of conscious states, um, a an experience of hearing middle C, a pain, an experience of seeing something red. So there's something that it's like for you to have these experiences. Um, that's consciousness for there, there being something that it's like. And that's the key phrase, right? The what, the what it's yeah, like. Yeah. Like, I like to uh, think about it in terms of the lights are on or not. So Nagel yeah. and his paper, what it's like mm-hmm. to be a bat, this famous philosophy paper in which he defines consciousness in this way. It's, it's like something to be a bat, if and only if switching places with the bat, hypothetically, isn't synonymous with complete darkness. Like there, there's, there's a subjective point of view to the bat or there's some sentient experience there. And it's that, it's that experience that, we, that we're talking about when we refer to consciousness. Yeah, 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 and that phrase does, it comes from Thomas Nagel, yeah. Yeah, we can say that what an experience is like, just another bit of definition, another definition, um, what an experience is like to have is its phenomenal character, so we can talk about the phenomenal character of seeing red, what exactly Mm -hmm. is it like to see red? Mm -hmm. So intentionality? So intentionality is sometimes... Uh, at least as at a, as a first pass, defined as the aboutness or directedness or ofness of mental states and maybe other items like linguistic expressions. Um, I don't love that definition. I find it a bit vague and metaphorical. So I prefer to fix reference on the phenomenon of interest here by pointing to paradigm cases, um, good examples that we have a good kind of access to. So these include, say, a perceptual experience you might have of a blue cup. It seems to be of or about a cup or that there is a cup or the property of being a cup or whatever you want to say. Um, Likewise, a thought, say the thought that grass is green seems to be about grass, about its being green, about greenness, seems to be directed towards a possible state of affairs of grass being green. Mm -hmm. So then we can say that intentionality is that feature of paradigm cases, this feature that we notice in paradigm cases, um, that we are tempted to describe using representational vocabulary. So it's a feature that we notice in these cases, um, but not any mm-hmm. old feature that we notice. Maybe there are other features that we notice, but the one that we're tempted to describe using representational vocabulary, like directedness and aboutness. And then mm-hmm. we can say that the content of an intentional state is what it says or represent, represents what it's about. Mm. 
Right. So in introspecting my conscious states, it doesn't seem like there's just kind of this phenomenal blob of experience where I can't individuate things, but it seems like the experience is in some real way directed at objects in the world. When I look at a chair, I don't just see, I see it's about a chair. It's not just, again, this eclectic mix of color experiences or something like that, right? I'm just trying to, you know, help kind of clarify these things in conceptual space before we really dive deeper into the nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's this introspectively accessible phenomenon. So you, you look at your experience, you notice it, and it looks like, well, okay, here's this this chair, and here's this um, this thought, and uh, and the way we describe our experiences um, uh, makes reference to what they represent or what they say about the world, what they present to us. So this visual experience presents a chair to me. This thought presents a proposition to me, um, a, a possible state of affairs, or something that can be true or false. That grass is green, or that there's a cat in my lap. Um, and without getting too embroiled in what this really consists in on a kind of metaphysical level um, without theorizing too much about it. We can just point to that phenomenon and say, hey, that's really surprising and interesting. Um, What's that? What does that consist in? Can we offer an account of that phenomenon? Right, right. So we have these two, again, zooming out, we have these two features of mentality, the consciousness, the what it's likeness of mentality and intentionality, the aboutness of mental Mm -hmm. states. We already touched upon the hard problem of consciousness, right? We still don't know what consciousness consists in. Seems like we've discovered some correlations between conscious states and neural states, but we haven't discovered anything that has the character of explanations. It seems to be a fundamental mystery as to why all of these neural processes in our brain give rise to experience, partly because it seems conceivable that all of these processes just take place in the dark, so to speak, in the absence of any phenomenal experience. But I just kind of wanted to bracket the hard problem right now and take a deeper dive into the nature of intentionality, which is itself so uh, arguably a mystery. And in your new book, The Phenomenal Basis of Intentionality, you give this kind of novel theory of intentionality in which you explain intentionality in terms of consciousness, right? So before we get there to your particular, what's called phenomenal intentionality theory, I thought we could just uh, make a few more conceptual distinctions here. So first, you have this distinction between the superficial character of intentional states, intentional states, and the deep nature of intentional states. So, what do you mean when you talk about that distinction? Yeah. Um, so, the deep nature of an intentional state or a content is what it is deep down, metaphysically speaking. So, theories of intentionality, uh, theories that try to give an account of what intentionality is, they're trying to tell us about the deep nature of intentionality. So, for example, is it a causal relation to things in the world? Is it um, a similarity relation? Is it a matter of um, bearing the right kind of primitive relation, awareness maybe relation to abstract things, abstract propositions, abstract properties? Um, What is it? Um, In contrast, the superficial character of an intentional state is the set of superficial features that it has that characterize it as the kind of state that it is. So the point of this distinction is to allow allow us to talk about which content we're representing and which intentional state we have. Are we representing the grass is green green content or the, the sky is blue content, for example, while remaining neutral on its metaphysics, on its deep nature? And the way we do that is by talking about what I'm calling its superficial character, these superficial 
characterizing features of intentional states and their contents. Mm. Right. So you could say that the superficial character is what allows us to individuate different intentional contents. When I say mm-hmm. I can point to the superficial character of an intentional state by saying, oh, well, that's about a cup, whereas this other mental state is about a chair. So I know that they're distinct intentional states. Now, what's the nature of these intentional states? I don't know. That's where we get into the philosophical theorizing and whatnot. And then so this theory that you give, phenomenal intentionality theory, is a theory about the deep nature of intentional states. One more distinction that I wanted to just put on the table before we take that deeper dive is this distinction between source intentionality and derived intentionality. Or, or original intentionality and derived intentionality, or whatever, however you want to terminologically frame it. But what is that? Yeah, there, yeah, there are different terms for uh, for uh, original intentionality. Sometimes it's called source intentionality by Uriah Kriegel, or intrinsic intentionality. Uh, uh, let's just go with original intentionality. So that's intentionality that does not depend on other instances of intentionality for its existence. So. Intuitively, it's intentionality in the first instance, the most basic or fundamental kind of intentionality. Whereas derived intentionality is intentionality that does depend on other instances of intentionality. So for example, it's sometimes thought that the representational features of natural language um, are derived from those of mental states, since linguistic expressions wouldn't have any meaning if we didn't, say, ascribe to them a meaning or take them to have a meaning or something like that or intend to use them in a certain way to convey a meaning. Um, so they derive their intentionality, um, if you, if you, yeah. so they derive their intentionality from uh, the intentionality of originally intentional mental states. Right, so if I'm looking at a stop sign or something like that, I wanna say, well, that sign's about something. It says stop, it has a certain directedness towards it, but it wouldn't, it doesn't have that directedness intrinsically. It, it derives that from whatever has that aboutness in an intrinsic manner or, or, yeah. or language, as you said. Yeah, it derives its intentionality from intentionality, uh, perhaps of mental states, our intentions to use a stop sign to communicate something, um, our, uh, even our beliefs about what stop signs mean, uh, whatever story you want to give. Uh, we endow stop signs with their contents in virtue of our originally intentional mental states. So the stop signs intentionality is merely derived. Right. So we got these two distinctions now when it comes to intentionality on the table, deep nature versus superficial character and original versus derived intentionality. So your theory of intentionality that you lay out in the book is a theory about the deep nature of intentionality. And it's first and foremost, a theory about original intentionality. What has what things have intentionality intrinsically, as you just said. So your the main competitors to your theory are what are known as the the tracking theory of intentionality and the functional role theory of intentionality. So what are those theories of intentionality? And then I suppose you could prop up your theory of intentionality in juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So so all these theories, these theories of intentionality, again, aim to specify the deep nature of intentionality. It tells what it really is, deep down, metaphysically speaking. So tracking theories, roughly, they say that original intentionality the basic or fundamental kind of intentionality is nothing over and above tracking relations to things in the environment, which can include, uh, which which might be uh, causal relations or informational relations or other kinds of relations that intuitively have something to do with keeping track of what's going on in the world. 
So for example, a perceptual representation of redness might represent redness because it does a good job of keeping track of instances of redness. So whenever there's something red, uh, you have an instance of this representational state. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's reliably just, caused by redness. Just quickly, uh, one non-mental example of tracking that I forget where I read it from, but it's tree rings. Isn't mm -hmm. this an example that's usually floated in the literature? Yeah, there are these yeah. things on trees, and they are, in the way that you describe, tracking what's going on in the world. And in particular, they're tracking the age of the tree. So you can kind of make sense of this primitive tracking relation in terms of that. But now we're talking about that in terms of brain states tracking different informational features about the environment or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on this picture, basically, uh, the, the mind is just a really sophisticated thermometer. So it, mm. it, just like as, as a thermometer keeps track of the temperature of the air around it, um, so too does, does your mind have various internal states that keep track of states of the world around them. And this keeping track of states of the world around you, that's just what intentionality is. Mm. Right. Or at least original intentionality. Mm -hmm. So what about the functional role theory of intentionality? Yeah, so the functional role theory takes original intentionality to be nothing over and above the functional roles of internal states. So you've got a bunch of internal states, and they're disposed to do different things in different circumstances, and that's their functional role. Uh, they might have an internal functional role, so what they're disposed to do with respect to other internal states. Uh, but some versions of the functional role theory um, arguably... Um, Arguably, most of the going versions that, that people are attracted to uh, are, are of this latter kind. They also include relations to things in the environment, so functional roles with respect to environmental things, including, say, the function of tracking something or, um, or uh, making you engage in certain behaviors. So on this picture, for example, a perceptual representation of redness might represent redness because it plays a particular redness role. Maybe it's connected to your concept of redness, to your linguistic expression, uh, your representation of your linguistic expression, red, um, or whatnot. Um, this functional role is characteristic of representing redness. And once you've got an internal state that plays it, then you're representing redness by that state. So would a simple way to summarize that view to be to say that intentionality doesn't consist in what a mental state is, but it consists in what a mental state does. Yeah, or yeah. the role that it plays in the greater yeah. cognitive economy or whatnot. Yeah, what it does and what it what it actually does and what it's disposed to do. Right, right. Yeah. So these two theories, the functional role theory and the tracking theory, were, to my knowledge, the main competitors in this arena, philosophical arena for a good amount of time. But now you have this new theory, which you're one of the main proponents of, the phenomenal intentionality theory, which kind of turns these older theories of intentionality on their head. So what is the phenomenal intentionality theory and how does it contrast with the tracking theory and the functional role theory? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the function, the, sorry, the phenomenal intentionality theory or PIT as you might call it, um, is the view that original intentionality is nothing over and above phenomenal consciousness. So, um, so it's all about consciousness basically. So the perceptual representation of redness on this, on this theory represents redness not because of what it, what it tracks or what it does, but just because it has a reddish phenomenal character, this accompanying phenomenal experience. And once you've got that reddish phenomenal character, you're automatically representing redness. There's nothing more to it.
Right. So, so going back to the aboutness, what is likeness language, you could say, according to phenomenal intentionality, you're explaining the aboutness of mental states in terms of the what it's likeness of mental states. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there, these two, well, there are many different problems for the tracking and functional role theories of intentionality that your phenomenal intentionality theory purportedly avoids or does better on. So I just wanted to kind of hone in on maybe one or two of those. And I thought we could start with the mismatch problem. This mm-hmm. is seen to be as posing a problem for the functional role and tracking theory, but as not posing a problem for the phenomenal intentionality theory. So what is this mismatch problem for intentionality? Yeah, so this problem is most obviously a problem for the tracking theory, but it's also a problem for certain versions of the functional role theory that invoke relations to the environment. And unfortunately, those are what I think the, the, the best going versions of the functional role theory. Okay, so the problem is roughly that these views that it's a problem for, uh, they make the wrong predictions about certain paradigm cases of intentionality. So paradigm cases being the ones that we notice introspectively and that presumably we have a pretty good pre-theoretic access to, um, a pre-theoretic access that allows us to, um, to to be able to tell what their contents are independently of our theory. So we don't have to rely on our theory to know what the contents of these states are. We can introspectively observe these states. And I think um, we can also uh, gain information from their psychological roles. So what they do in the mental economy, what further states they give rise to, um, what behaviors they're connected to, what higher order thoughts we can uh, form using them, and so on, their general psychological role. Um, all this gives us some information as to what these states represent. So we've got these paradigm cases of intentionality and the tracking theory and um, and certain versions of functional role theories don't get the right don't get uh, don't ascribe contents correctly to these states. So my favorite example is that of perceptual color representations. So the representations that are involved in uh, in uh, perceptual color experiences. So seeing something as red or blue or whatever. So tracking theories presumably predict that this state represents something like uh, surface reflectance properties of objects. So dispositions to reflect different proportions of different wavelengths of incoming light um, or to emit these uh, different proportions of different wavelengths of light or whatever, um, because that's what they track. So what do perceptual color representations track? These surface reflectance profiles. Uh, But I think that's the wrong answer. Um, going back to the theory of independent ways of knowing about what our intentional states represent, introspection and considerations of psychological role, these ways suggest that what we represent when we have perceptual experiences of colors is something like a non-dispositional, non-relational, primitive color property, what David right. Chalmers calls edenic redness or edenic blueness, edenic colors more generally, which is just colors as they appear to be taken at face value. Uh, so basically tracking theories and functional role theories, uh, at least the ones that invoke relations to the environment, get the wrong answer on these cases. Yes, yeah, so just to make sure I understand what you're saying, you're saying there are these pre-theoretical ways to understand what a mental state is about, namely considerations of psychological role and introspection, right? Yeah. So independent of any philosophy, let's step out of the ivory mm-hmm. tower for a second. What is you're looking at a red tomato? What is your mental state about? And the visual response is well, it's about that edenic redness. And by edenic redness, you mean something like that raw redness sensation. 
right? That's what it's about. But the tracking theory of intentionality gets the wrong answer when you ask the question what it's about. It says, well, actually, no, it's not about that Edenic redness, but it's about surface reflectance properties. That's actually what it's tracking in the environment. And to me, this is such an interesting case. And I see this in other domains of philosophy as well, because I guess from a methodological standpoint, I oftentimes think it's more appropriate to start from those pre-theoretical considerations or intuitions and then build your theories around those intuitions so you get the right answer with respect to those intuitions. Just to take it to the domain of morality for a second, I think we should start with these fundamental moral intuitions, right? It's, it's wrong to light an innocent kitten on fire and watch it burn, right? Like that's wrong, no matter what your moral theory is. So if there's a moral theory which delivers the wrong verdict with respect to that particular case, we want to throw out that moral theory. So it's, so again, it's a matter of starting this, those intuitions building the theory around it as opposed to starting with the theory and then changing your intuitions in accordance with the dictates of the theory. Um, and I, 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 so I don't know, it's just a methodological point, but I feel like it applies here too, because we're starting with these pre-theoretical considerations and we're saying, okay, well, our theory has to say, deliver the correct answer. Sorry, I know mm -hmm. that was a long rant. Yeah, uh, sort of, except I wouldn't say that it's pre-theoretic intuitions that we're starting with, but uh, just observations, uh, introspective observations of mm. the contents of our experiences. So the, the mm. so remember our target is uh, intentionality, which is um, at least in some instances, an introspectively uh, observable phenomenon. I mean, there's no denying that we've got uh -huh. these intentional states that, uh, well, these states that uh, we describe in this way and that we can introspectively notice in some cases. And we wanna know what's up with these states. Okay, so at least you got to capture those cases that we introspectively notice and that form our paradigm cases for fixing on the phenomenon. So I think, yeah. uh, so, the, so the two theory independent ways of knowing about our intentional states. So one is basically observation, introspective observation, but still observation nonetheless. Um, there's a phenomenon here and we've got to capture it. Um, the second one, there, there's a little bit of, a, um, of, a, of an inferential leap from from these considerations to claims about the content. So there's a leap from an observed psychological role that an intentional state plays to what the content should be. Um, but again, these are, you know, these are kind of broadly kind of, uh, you know, close to the ground, um, broad, you know, uh, empirical considerations. Um, so we want to capture those. So I'm not really relying yeah. on any intuitions, like intuitively, I think this is what we represent or whatever. Uh, but but rather these other considerations that I think are are even more um, reliable in this area in this domain than just bare intuition. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. That is a disanalogy between the moral case that I just presented in this case. In the moral case, it seems like you actually are having a kind of intuition morally about what's going on. I guess on some theory you could say you're actually directly observing the immorality of the act or something like that. But on this case, you're talking about introspective observation, which is a different phenomenon, right? But mm -hmm. again, the basic point being that these naturalistic theories, functional role in the tracking theory, they don't deliver the correct verdict with respect to these pre-theoretical considerations. So what, so the phenomenal intentionality theory, so the argument goes, avoids the mismatch problem. How exactly mm -hmm. does it do that? Uh, so it avoids the mismatch problem because intentional states have phenomenal characters um, that match them. 
um, that are alike with respect to their superficial character, if you will. So for example, your perceptual state representing redness has an accompanying reddish phenomenal character. And this reddish phenomenal character matches the content, the edenic reddish content, uh, the content with the edenic reddish superficial character. So this is just a way of characterizing that, that content as which content it is um, that we observe um, and mm. that, we, that we think for theory-independent reasons um, that we're representing. So, mm. um, so there's, there's a match there. Um, we can either identify this reddish phenomenal character with the Edenic reddish content. So just say it's the same thing. So what you're representing just is what it's like. That is the content. Um, and metaphysically that. speaking, deep down inside, yeah. right? That's what that's what contents are made of. They're made of phenomenal characters. Um, right. Or you could you could um, uh, you could um, introduce some space between the what it's like and the the content. So you could say that representing the content is determined by, maybe necessarily determined by having a particular phenomenal state, but it's not identical to it. So there are different options here. Right. So when you're talking about the relationship between intentionality and consciousness and the phenomenal intentionality theory, that gets into the distinction between identity pit versus mm -hmm. constitution pit, which I want to yeah. get into. Before we mm -hmm. get into that, I just had, I think, one more question about the well, first, how do these naturalistic theories respond to the mismatch problem? Because, mm -hmm. yeah, as I mentioned, this seems to me to be a very damning objection to these theories, this mismatch problem. What is the typical rejoinder? Yeah, well, as far as, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is a typical rejoinder uh, because I don't think this problem is really addressed head on very often. Um, so mm -hmm. a lot of the discussion of objections to tracking theories focuses on problems of content determinacy. Can they attribute determinate contents? Can they attribute non-disjunctive contents? There's a disjunction problem. Um, so there's a lot of discussion on that. Uh, but um, but there are certain certain uh, defenses that are floating around. Certain um, certain ideas that at least could be used as defenses floating around. Uh, particularly ones that appeal to different ways of representing contents, say representing contents conceptually or non-conceptually or under particular modes of presentation. So for example, uh, we might say that color experiences do indeed represent surface reflectance profiles as the tracking theory says, but we don't recognize this because they represent them in a non-conceptual way. Um, so because of that, they don't, um, these non-conceptual representations of surface reflectance properties don't hook up with our conceptual representations of surface reflectance properties that we as theorists have um, in the right way for us to recognize them as the same contents or something like that. So there might be a story to be told there, uh, but, um, but yeah, I don't I think guess, that, that. Yeah. yeah. My basic response would be, well, now it seems like we're departing from what we're really talking about when we're talking about intentionality. But I don't know. Um, maybe. I mean, I guess. Again, it just seems to me that when we're talking about that, yeah. what it's boutness of edenic redness. Mm -hmm. But I suppose we could be accused on behalf of the naturalistic theory as begging the question in favor of phenomenal intentionality theorist. Again, I'm just thinking out loud right now. Yeah, well, there are different ways of spinning this non-conceptual content response. And one is to say that uh, that non-conceptually representing a content really does capture the, the the content that you observe. It's just that you don't notice it. And there's some barrier to you recognizing that this content that you observe, this apparently identic red content 
uh, apparently Edenic reddish content that you observe is actually a surface reflectance property content. Um, so there's there's some some reason why we're failing to see this. Um, but I agree with you that that it's it's totally mysterious how that is supposed to how that how that could could possibly work. So how does somehow non-conceptually representing uh, surface reflectance properties make them look like Edenic reddish contents and make them behave like those contents? Mm -hmm. Now another view would say um, would say uh, there's these contents that we track non-conceptually, and that's what we're interested in. And then all this Edenic reddish stuff that you're talking about—that's something else. Okay, well, whatever it is, that's the phenomenon that I want to account for. That's the phenomenon that we we fixed on with our paradigm cases and our extensive definition. So maybe that's what you're getting at. I think that's um, what I was getting at. In, in saying that it's changing the topic. Yeah, you can talk about these these other representations that are not introspectively accessible and don't play these psychological roles that we're talking about. But what about the ones that are introspectively accessible and do play these psychological roles? We still haven't given an account of those. We've only given an account of something else. We've changed the topic. Right. Yeah. So turning now to the question of naturalism. So one consideration that's often propped up in favor of the functional rule theory and the tracking theory is the idea that these theories are more naturalistically amendable than the phenomenal intentionality theory. Right. So mm -hmm. oftentimes the line of explanation here is you'll have theorists that'll explain consciousness in terms of intentionality, and then they'll explain intentionality in terms of a tracking relation or a functional role relation, which can be understood from a naturalistic point of view. One potential worry for the phenomenal intentionality theory is that it explains intentionality, this mystery that we're trying to solve, in terms of consciousness, which is itself a mystery. So in a sense, it just replaces one mystery with another mystery. But in a recent paper, you and David Bourget, I believe, mm -hmm. you say that, well, actually, when it comes to naturalistic considerations, the phenomenal intentionality theory might be better off than the functional role and the tracking theory of intentionality. So I was wondering whether you could just explain that in further detail. Why do naturalistic considerations potentially sway in favor of the phenomenal intentionality theory. And I suppose that requires a definition as to what exactly we mean by naturalism in this context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are two things you can mean by naturalism, or at least um, uh, David and I and, and other, um, uh, other people as well like to distinguish between two different kinds of naturalism. One is a kind of ontological thesis or an ontological constraint on theorizing to the effect that we should only appeal to uh, quote-unquote naturalistic items in our theories, where these are items that are fundamental physical items that don't have any mentality or anything that is nothing over and above them, something like mm -hmm. that. And then the worry there is that consciousness is not clearly a naturalistic item, which is a reason to then reject Pitt uh, because it appeals to, to this not clearly naturalistic item. And in that paper that you mentioned, David and I argue that this is not a good argument against Pitt. It's not a good reason to reject Pitt. Um, basically, because whether or not consciousness is naturalistic, it exists. It's a, an existing item. Um, I think it's undeniable that it exists. And so it's fair game to invoke it. If it is, in fact, naturalistic, then invoking it is compatible with naturalism. So that's great um, if you like naturalism. But if it's not naturalistic, then given that it exists, uh, naturalism is not an appropriate ontological constraint on our theories. Um, whether or not uh, 
consciousness is naturalistic, then it exists and there's nothing wrong with being ontologically committed to it. So the only appropriate ontological constraint on your theory is that it appeals to things that exist. So either way, ontological naturalism doesn't tell against Pitt. But as I mentioned, um, there's another sense of, of naturalism um, yeah. on which it's a kind of methodological uh, claim uh, or a methodological um, uh, constraint, which commits us to a broadly scientific or evidence-based methodology, at least where this kind of methodology is appropriate. So um, it can be quite open-ended what constitutes a naturalistic methodology. Um, and somebody like Penelope Maddie has developed this kind of, uh, of naturalism, emphasized how open-ended it is. But anyways, at the very least, it involves making sure your theories are compatible with the available evidence and, and following the evidence to where it leads. So now if we go back to the mismatch problem for tracking theories and long-arm functional role theories, these theories, um, I think, just make the wrong predictions. So they're not compatible with all the available evidence, especially the evidence from introspection and psychological role. And as we also discussed, there are various epicycles we could add to these theories, something about modes of presentation or non-conceptual contents to try to make them compatible with our evidence. I don't think that works, but anyways, at the end of the day, it really doesn't look like these theories flow from the evidence, but Pitt does. So this is what David and I mean um, when we say that, uh, that, that considerations of naturalism pull in favor of Pitt. Insofar as you care about methodological naturalism, you should prefer Pitt. Insofar as you care about ontological naturalism, um, there's no reason to, to prefer any of the theories. I think they're all um, plausibly uh, methodologically natural, uh, sorry, ontologically naturalistic, but methodological naturalism, I think, pulls in favor of Pitt. Right. Yeah. So two points there, two understandings of naturalism, ontological naturalism, the idea that you everything can be explained in terms of naturalistic properties, where naturalistic properties are fundamentally non-mental, probably physical, physically understood properties, and and phenomenal intentionality isn't threatened by that kind of naturalism because we know that it exists. So if it's not, if it if it can be, if physicalism yeah, is true, yeah, we know true, that consciousness exists. We know that yeah. consciousness exists, right? Sorry. If physicalism is true, or some physicalist naturalistic theory, well, then naturalism is not a problem for consciousness for obvious reasons. If consciousness can't be reduced to naturalism, we know it exists in the world. Therefore, something's wrong with naturalism. And the second right. point, methodological naturalism. And it's just to make sure I'm understanding is, well, a more naturalistic theory is one that's compatible with the existing evidence and phenomenal intentionality is arguably more compatible with the existing evidence precisely because it does better with respect to these pre-theoretical considerations like introspection and considerations of psychological role that we just talked about. Um, as we talked about before the podcast, my biases here well, I guess I'm tempted to say that not only consciousness exists, but it is clearly a natural phenomenon. And here's where, again, my affinity with Galen Strassen's naturalistic panpsychism comes in, which I hope we'll talk about later on in the podcast a bit more, where the basic idea to my understanding, according, so panpsychism, and we'll talk about this later on a bit more, the idea that consciousness constitutes the fundamental level of reality and is in a sense ubiquitous or everywhere. And Strassen's point is that the hard problem of consciousness, it's not, it doesn't fundamentally flow out of our ignorance with respect to consciousness per se, but it fundamentally flows out of our ignorance with respect to physical matter. 
Like, right? Like we think there's a hard problem of consciousness because we think we know more about the nature of physical matter than we actually do. But it's conceivable to think that when we arrive at a complete completed science of the physical universe, like right, our phys our concept of physical matter keeps changing. At first it was atoms, then it's quarks, now maybe it's strings. Maybe at some level we'll have to postulate consciousness <laughs> in our physical theories to explain some things. And then again, we can see how physicalism could potentially collapse into panpsychism. So I, that just I just wanted to bring that into the picture because I feel like it kind of dovetails with what you were saying about naturalism, where to me, we can just say that consciousness is a natural property and proceed from there because, again, it's the only thing that we really know that exists and that we can't deny, like you said. Yeah, what, what I hear you saying, um, and, and Strassen too, is that we shouldn't understand ontological naturalism the way that is often understood in philosophy of mind as excluding any mentality at the fundamental level. Um, exactly. We should understand yeah. it in a way that also includes consciousness. And I'm, I'm sure I'm. Okay. I mean, this is just a terminological um, um, disagreement here. We could use naturalism in either way. Right. Um, so I don't think we're fundamentally in disagreement there. Um, I wanted to, to pick up on one one strand of your initial question about naturalism that I think also dovetails nicely with panpsychism, since you bring it up, which yeah. is so somebody might criticize Pitt by saying, well. Um, uh, I want a naturalistic explanation because it will kind of get me all the way down to the fundamental level or much closer than an explanation that invokes consciousness because mm -hmm. consciousness is this phenomenon we don't really understand very well. Now, I don't think that's a good reason to prefer uh, to prefer a naturalistic theory that it yields more understanding in terms of what's going on at the fundamental level because as we said, consciousness exists and maybe uh, and so it can it can form the basis of other things other phenomena um, that uh, it might turn out we don't understand so well just because we don't under understand consciousness um, as well. But it's not a truth indicating virtue of a theory that it invokes better understood rather than less well understood things that we know exist. Um, mm. However, if you like panpsychism um, as, as I do, then that does give you a theory of consciousness that is compatible with the phenomenal intentionality theory and everything, um, everything, and, and the way that I develop it and argue for it also in my book. Um, and plugging that in, then you would get this more complete explanation of intentionality. So you would get a more complete explanation of intentionality in terms of, of what's going on at the fundamental level of reality, um, which, according to panpsychism, involves consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh I want to, I definitely want to talk a lot more about that compatibility between panpsychism and your phenomenal intentionality theory. Um, maybe we could bracket that and then return to that after we dig a bit deeper into the phenomenal intentionality theory and flesh out some distinctions there. But I definitely mm -hmm. want to return to that because, as you know, I'm a panpsychist. Um, but yeah, one thing I just wanted to mention in what you just said, you said that the fact that you, one theory makes something more understandable, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's truth conducive. And I definitely share that intuition. I oftentimes, I guess it's just a point about intuitions. Um, I oftentimes don't know whether I should trust my intuitions because I feel like a lot of times in philosophy, there's this assumption that intuitions, if a theory is more intuitive, then it's more truth conducive. 
but I don't necessarily see any reason to believe that's true, especially if you understand evolutions from a Darwinian context where intuitions didn't evolve to track truth necessarily, but they evolved to help us pass our genes down into the next generation. So it's why should we rely on these intuitions when constructing theories? Why should we assume that because a theory does better when it comes to intuitions, it's more truth conducive? And I guess that opens up that opens up a whole nother philosophical doorway about the nature of intuitions. And we don't have to step through that. But I was just thinking about that and what you said. Yeah, I agree with that point about um, intuitions um, not necessarily being uh, a good guide to truth. So one way of putting your point is that there might be debunking arguments that explain why we have particular intuitions without uh, these intuitions having to be true. So we can explain why we have a particular intuition without that, without invoking the truth of that intuition in our explanation, then you might think we've thereby debunked uh, that intuition and, and it cannot be used to support some further claim. And this is part of the reason why um, when when you suggested that uh, that the mismatch uh, problem relied on intuition, I was like, yeah. no, 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 it doesn't. It relies on introspection and <laughs> the psychological role. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rely on intuition because I don't think right. intuition is uh, reliable. Um, well, anyways, I think we would need we would need um, a much a much stronger argument to establish that it is reliable in this domain. Right, right. Okay, let's uh, dig a bit deeper on the phenomenal intentionality theory and flesh out what your particular version of this theory is, and then we'll come back out of the weeds and talk a little bit about panpsychism, if that sounds good. So first, at the top of the podcast, we mentioned this distinction between original intentionality and derived intentionality, and Mm -hmm. there are different versions of phenomenal intentionality which take different attitudes regarding the existence and status of derived intentionality. And this gets to the distinction between what you call strong, weak, and moderate pit, I believe. So what is this tripartite distinction and which of these three particular views of phenomenal intentionality do you endorse? Okay, so weak pit is just the claim that there is phenomenal intentionality. As I'm using the term, it's not a version of pit, but a weakening of, uh, of Pitt's central thesis. So it doesn't provide a theory of intentionality because it doesn't tell us about all uh, all intentionality. Um, it just tells us that there is phenomenal intentionality. It's compatible with the existence of non-phenomenal intentionality and non-phenomenal intentionality that is original intentionality, like uh, that might be obtained through tracking relations. Okay, so let's set that right. aside. Um, moderate pit is just what we've been calling pit so far. It's the claim that all original intentionality is phenomenal intentionality. So it's compatible with the claim that there is non-phenomenal intentionality so long as that non-phenomenal intentionality is not original intentionality. So it's got to be derived. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have strong pit, which is the claim that all intentionality is phenomenal intentionality. Um, and this, this view is not compatible with the claim that there's non-phenomenal intentionality. So there's no other kind of intentionality other than phenomenal intentionality. Right. So my favorite version of Pitt is strong Pitt. Mm-hmm. So why do you endorse strong Pitt? I guess it seems for someone who's not acquainted with the literature, they might say, mm-hmm. wait, you're saying that there's no derived intentionality, but what about the examples that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast? What about a stop sign? That seems like mm-hmm. it's about something. What about written language? That seems like it's about something. These seems to These seem to be clear examples of what you call non-phenomenal or non-conscious intentionality. So, okay, mm-hmm. I'm with you. 
when it comes to phenomenal intentionality, but now it seems like you're getting a little too radical for my taste. Okay. Um, well, yes, I agree with you that there's that these are examples of something, but I don't think they're examples of intentionality. So I right. do think there is such thing as what I call derived representation, and also that there are mental cases of derived representation. So I think there's derived mental representation. Um, and I think we need to invoke derived mental representation in our story of thoughts and standing propositional attitudes like beliefs and desires that you count as having even when you're not entertaining them, basically unconscious beliefs and desires uh, that you still count as having even though they're unconscious. So those are all a matter of derived mental representation for me. So just However, quickly, what is, yeah. the, what, what is a mental representation and, and how is that different from an intentional state? How do you flesh out the distinction between that, those two? Well, I mean, I'm using the term representation as a kind of broader, um, less uh, technical um, kind of semantic-y notion uh, because I've used intentionality to mean this very precise thing, this phenomenon that we ostensibly observe. So I think there's something representational about these states. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they, there, there is a phenomenon of derived representation that stop signs, um, representational properties, and words in, in a language. Uh, these are all paradigms, um, good examples of this kind of phenomenon, um, but I'm just calling it something else. I'm calling it derived representation. This doesn't commit me to there being representations in the head, but sometimes I talk like that because I find it you know, a, a useful way of talking about particular intentional states without having to 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 to, um, to commit to what their contents are. Right. But anyway, okay. so the idea is so even though um, even though there are derived there is derived mental representation, um, and this is why I count as endorsing strong pit rather than just pit. When you look at what that derived representation is, it turns out to be a wholly different kind of phenomenon than intentionality proper, the phenomenon that we ostensibly uh, defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are some key differences, I think, that warrant saying it belongs to a different category, a different natural kind. So one is that derived representation is always relative to a subject. So stop signs, which are, again, paradigms of derived representation, derivatively represent stop for us and not for ants and not in and of themselves. And the same goes, or so I argue, for mental cases of derived representation. So our thoughts or other states uh, represent their derived contents for us and not for others um, and not in and of itself. So in contrast, though, intentionality, the ostensibly defined phenomenon, is not relative to a subject in this way. So my intentional states are my own, but they don't represent for me, relative to me, or to me. They just represent. Right. So again, zooming out, you're saying, look, when we talk about derived intentionality, the phenomenon that we pick out there is different enough from the phenomenon that we're picking out when we talk about original intentionality that we ought not include it under the same conceptual umbrella. And now you're fleshing out some of the differences between derived intentionality and original intentionality. The first, which you just discussed, is that derived intentionality is relative to us in a way that original intentionality is not. What are some of the other key differences between the two? Right, right. And, and also, um, when we set out, uh, um, when we set out uh, uh, fixing on the phenomenon of interest, of intentionality, mm-hmm. uh, we, we fixed on it through paradigm cases. We fixed on a particular phenomenon. Um, now we can check to see if this other, these other phenomena have that same feature that we fixed on. And I think the answer is no. 
Um, and the reason for that is because of these differences. So that's just another way of putting it. You could have a concept um, or a term that captures this disjunctive kind, right? Um, but right. that's not the term that we've started off uh, off with in this podcast and that I start off with in my book. Right, yeah. right. Which is just to say, like, look, there's many ways to define things. If you want to have this conjunctive yeah. term that subsumes both of them, like, feel free. But yeah, yeah. that's not how we started off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not a kind of intentionality in direct representation is not a kind of intentionality given how we've been using the term, though there are other ways of using the term on which it would be. Right. Okay. So, right. So, so I guess let's get to the next distinction between identity and constitution. So we've established that not only are you a phenomenal intentionality theorist, you're a strong phenomenal intentionality theorist, which means that you don't really believe that there is this thing as derived intentionality, though you recognize the existence of derived representation. Now, mm -hmm. this other distinction between different kinds of phenomenal intentionality theory, realization versus constitution versus identity, we've already touched upon this distinction. It gets to what mm -hmm. the what the precise relationship is between consciousness and intentionality, right? We began by saying phenomenal intentionality theorists are, want to explain intentionality in terms of consciousness, but how exactly do you flesh out that explanation relation? Is it a relationship of identity? Is it a relationship of constitution? You are an identity phenomenal intentionality theorist. So I guess, could you flesh out the distinction between those three versions of the view and explain why you like mm -hmm. the identity version? Yeah, yeah. So according to Pitt, all original intentionality is phenomenal intentionality. So intentionality that is nothing over and above phenomenal consciousness. But there are different ways that one thing can be nothing over and above something else. One way is just by being identical to it. Another way is by being realized or constituted by it. Um, maybe in other ways by being grounded in it. There are all these kinds of relations that, uh, that, that, that you might think hold between phenomenal intentionality and phenomenal consciousness. So like you said, I like the identity view, which is roughly the view that original intentionality is just identical to phenomenal consciousness. Right. Okay. So, so, um, more explicitly, every particular instance of original intentionality, every token originally intentional state, as sometimes people say, um, is identical to some token phenomenal state, some particular phenomenal state, every type of original intentional state or every originally intentional property. Um, is identical to some phenomenal state type, and every originally represented content is identical to some phenomenal character. So everything's identical, basically. Mm -hmm. Just one and the same thing. Yeah, right. so, yeah. yeah. So why, um, why do you prefer that view over the Constitution view? What are your main reasons for endorsing the identity theory? Yeah, so, so one reason is that I think it's the clearest and most straightforward view. Um, and absent strong reasons to move away from it, I think uh, I think it it um, it's a good starting point at least. Um, other views, in contrast, I think need to say a little bit more to achieve the same level of explanation that we get from just a pure identity view. So, for example, a realization view needs to say what intentional states are such that they can be realized by right. these phenomenal states, which maybe are distinct from them. And likewise for a constitution view. What are intentional states such that they can be constituted by phenomenal states without being identical to them? So there's something more missing from the story that we'd need to, to add to these alternative views to get the same level of explanation as the very clear and straightforward identity view. Yeah, so just these views, yeah. they face more of an explanatory burden than the identity view. When you're just talking about the identity view, you're just saying, look, 
the aboutness, what mental states are about are just what they're like. These things are one in the same thing, the aboutness and what is likeness. And I don't need to cash out the explanation further than that. Whereas when it comes to the, these other views, there's more of an explanatory burden and more work to do. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. there's more work to do. And I'm not saying that this work can't be done um, or that there aren't good reasons to move away from identity pit. And I talk about some of those possible reasons in my book, but ultimately I think that um, that identity pit is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And you're, I think you're about to mention another reason as to why yeah. you identity pit. Yeah, so another reason is that um, there's there's some introspective evidence, I think, for the view. So take an example of viewing a blue square. Um, in that case, you don't notice these two distinct blueness-related mental qualities. You don't notice a represented blueness, um, as well as this felt, experienced blueness. There's only one blueness, and it can be described either as what you're representing or the phenomenal character of your experience, what you're feeling. And I think the most straightforward, pit-friendly way of accounting for this introspective uh, data is that uh, the two are just identical. The represented blueness is just identical to the felt blueness. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I want to quickly talk about the relationship between this identity version that you endorse and representationalism about consciousness. Mm -hmm. So representationalism about consciousness and Phenomenal intentionality theory are, to my understanding, usually posed as competitors to one another, whereas if the phenomenal intentionality theory is trying to explain intentionality in terms of consciousness, representationalism about consciousness, which is first and foremost a theory of consciousness, Mm -hmm. tries to explain consciousness in terms of intentionality, right? But Mm -hmm. these two aren't necessarily competitors to one another. They actually are compatible if Mm -hmm. you endorse the identity theory that you're endorsing, because you're saying, look, mm-hmm. these are just one and the same things so that actually mm-hmm. is compatible with the representationalist mm-hmm. view of consciousness. But I mm-hmm. believe that the identity theory doesn't necessarily entail representationalism, but mm-hmm. on your version of the identity view, you mm-hmm. do embrace a version of representationalism. I was wondering if you could just spell out uh, how you see that relation. Yeah, so that, that's right. Um, uh, so. Um, the identity version of Pitt does not entail representationalism because it's compatible with the identity version of Pitt. So the identity version of Pitt says, uh, one of the things it says is that every, every originally intentional state is identical to some uh, phenomenal state. And if you combine that with strong Pitt, then you get every intentional state is, compa- is identical to some phenomenal state. Mm. Um, to get representationalism, you also have to add that every phenomenal state is identical to some uh, some um, intentional state. So according right. to strong identity pit, there could be phenomenal states that are not intentional. So maybe you might have a view like that about moods. So you might say moods are just mere phenomenal states. They, they're not intentional. They don't have any contents. That's compatible with strong identity pit. Um, however, as you also mentioned, uh, I also want to subscribe to representationalism, so I don't think there are counterexamples like the case of moods uh, to representationalism. Um, and so the view that 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 I end up holding when you combine representationalism with strong identity pit is basically just the view that consciousness and intentionality are one and the same thing. Right, right. So if you're in a, a strong identity pit theorist, as you said, you could say, well, yeah, I think all intentional states are phenomenal states, but 
maybe there are some conscious states which lack intentional content. That's a way to be a strong identity pit theorist without endorsing that representationalist view. But so you want to say that, no, actually all conscious states have intentional content as well. You mentioned mm -hmm. moods, and this gets to another paper that you've written called uh, Moods, Intentionalism About Moods, I think. So just to flesh that out a little further, moods and perhaps emotions are these conscious states which ostensibly seem to lack any intentionality. It seems like when I'm having a mood of anxiety or depression or something like that, it's this very general phenomenal state which doesn't seem to be about any particular object, but it's very free-floating. So this is an example mm -hmm. that some philosophers will point to and say, look, here's an example of a conscious state. There's something it's like to experience it, but it's not actually about anything in particular because it is so free-floating. And mm -hmm. of course, you want to deny that by saying, no, actually, moods can be explained in an intentional way. What exactly, what way do you ex go about providing such an explanation? Yeah, so I think um, the, the way I approach the, the problem of moods and the question of do they have intentional contents and if so, what are they, is by first noting that uh, for every mood, there's a corresponding emotion that is phenomenally similar to it in some way. Um, so if we think of emotions as directed, effective states, uh, maybe they're undirected emotions, then, then they would be accommodated in the same way as moods for me, but focus on the directed ones. Uh, so fear of a dog. Uh, corresponding to fear of, of a dog, you have this fearful mood that is phenomenally similar with respect to the fearfulness aspect. Um, okay, so we've got the same fearfulness bit in, in both emotions and moods. Now, I think the, the best representationalist account of emotions for various reasons is one that, uh, that ascribes to them uh, primitive, effective contents that qualify particular objects. So they represent some object which might be provided by perception, maybe you're perceiving a dog, um, or thought, or some other way. And your, mood, your, your, your affective experience, your emotion, qualifies that object as having this affective, this primitive affective property, this Edenic, if you will, affective property. It seems scary, which is not just a matter of being disposed to cause harm or whatever. Okay, so now go to the case of moods. They seem to be phenomenally similar to emotions, except they're not directed at particular objects. So you just feel afraid without being afraid of a dog or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the most straightforward view then of moods, um, at least of the, the intentional properties of moods, is that they represent just the affective properties and no yeah. object. So they represent the fearfulness bit, uh, the scariness bit, without representing the dog bit. Right, so whereas right. an emotion, a fearful emotion, fear of a dog might represent that a dog is scary, um, a fearful mood just represents scariness. Right. So in a way, you are giving a very similar explanation for moods and emotions, right? When it comes to emotions, you're saying, yeah, we're, they are intentional in the sense that uh, they're intentional states that are representing these sui generis affective properties, affective with an A, as you say, but they're fundamentally object involving. These affective properties are attributed to some object in the world, maybe some object that is in perception. But when it, when it comes to, so that's emotions. When it comes to mm -hmm. moods, there's the same representation of sui generis affective properties, but there is no object involving concept there. Do mm -hmm. some philosophers want to give completely different explanations for moods and emotions, or do most people recognize that Yes, there is a distinction to be made here, but fundamentally, 
these are very similar phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, representationalists try to account for for moods in terms of representing the world as a whole as being a certain way. Right. Right. So if or I'm anxious, it's like I'm anxious about everything, or like the whole yeah, world. Yeah. Or representing so being disposed to represent any object you encounter as being a certain way. Uh, and these kinds of views, um, maybe they're trying to do this, or maybe it's a, it's an accident, but they they attribute propositional contents to moods. So moods are the kinds of uh, uh, have the kinds of contents that can be true or false. They say that something is the case. Uh, on my view. Um, I don't think we have to, I don't think all contents have to be propositional. So I'm totally okay with attributing to them non-propositional contents. So moods are not truth apt on my picture, but they're still representational. Mm. I'd like to make also a, a small clarification about what's what's meant by saying um, an object, a represented object and a represented property. Mm. Uh, so going back to the distinction between deep nature and superficial character. So when we say that, uh, that an emotion represents an object as having an effective property. I don't mean to say that the deep nature of these contents are objects, actual objects in the world, concrete objects or something like that. And uh, properties like tropes or abstract properties or right. whatever. Uh, I don't mean to, to be making these kinds of uh, metaphysical claims about the deep natures of contents. So what I, what I mean is that they have contents with a, an objectual superficial character uh, right. that's being qualified by a content with a proprietal superficial character. So right. what I'm doing is pointing at the particular contents that they have without uh, being committed to what their deep natures are. So you have this version of strong identity pit with, combined with representationalism. And you do think it entails representationalism because as we talked about, you think that all conscious states are intentional as well. But one potential worry that might prop up in people's mind there who might be inclined towards the phenomenal intentionality theory is that the phenomenal intentionality theory is supposed to be an explanation of intentionality in terms of consciousness. But one might say that on your strong identity version of Pitt combined with representationalism, you're not really explaining intentionality in terms of consciousness. You're Why couldn't you say that you're explaining consciousness in terms of intentionality? It seems like you're doing that just as much as you are explaining intentionality in terms of consciousness. But we're supposed to be talking about the nature of intentionality here, not the nature of consciousness. So how would you respond to a worry of that sort? Yeah, um, good question. So so why is Pitt... Why is this version of Pitt that's, that identifies consciousness with intentionality a theory right. of intentionality in terms of consciousness rather than a theory of consciousness in terms of intentionality? Um, exactly. Well, so I think it's not because of what the theory, uh, th that statement of the theory says, that's just an identity claim, but rather because of further features uh, that I want to ascribe to consciousness slash intentionality, the self-identical thing, further features that I think it has. And because of these further features, I think the view basically fits intentionality to consciousness rather than consciousness to intentionality. So it informs us as to the nature of intentionality rather than the nature of consciousness. So here's what I have in mind. So normally you might think that intentionality is this relational thing. It's a matter of being related to a distinctly existing content, um, some possible state of affairs, some concrete object in the world. It's a, it's a relational thing. It's, extrins it's an extrinsic property. 
Um, it's well, externalism is true about it. So maybe intrinsic duplicates, molecule for molecule duplicates from the skin in might represent differently. Um, it's abundant. So non-conscious states have it too. Uh, maybe even stop signs and words have it too. And it's commonly thought it's easily for it in terms of naturalistic entities, um, like physical stuff. Um, in contrast, uh, we might normally think of consciousness as being non-relational, just a kind of inner state of some sort, not a relation to something beyond. Um, right. Intrinsic, um, in that it's not a matter of your environment, whether or not you have a particular um, particular intentional, uh, particular conscious state. Um, internalism is true of consciousness, in other words, um, not abundant, but rather scarce. So there isn't all that much consciousness. So, there, so um, non-conscious aids, um, which might be thought to be intentional, are not conscious um, and not easily naturalizable. So that goes back to the hard problem of consciousness, a problem that applies to consciousness, but it might commonly be thought doesn't apply to intentionality. So long story short, I think all these features of consciousness actually apply to uh, this intentionality slash consciousness thing, uh, the self-identical thing. Um, yeah. And that's why we're fitting intentionality to consciousness rather than the other way around. And that's why I think it's appropriate to say that the overall picture provides a theory of intentionality in terms of consciousness rather than a theory of consciousness in terms of intentionality. Right. So we're making more of a discovery about what intentionality is that contradicts what we would normally pre-theoretically think it is as opposed to the other way around? Is that yeah. kind of yeah, the sound right. you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, com compared to a kind of mind-brain identity theory, um, uh, basically says that uh, the mind has all the features that you describe to the brain. Right. right so their consciousness um, is identical to neural states as opposed to identical to intentional states, which yeah, is what yeah. um, intentionality theory yeah. says. Yeah, yeah. And this is normally thought of as a theory of the mind in terms of neural properties and neural states rather than a kind of mentalist theory of the brain. Right. right. And, and we can think of it in the same way. That the reason why this identity gives us an account of the mind rather than an account of the brain is because it's fitting the mind to the brain rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah, I like that analogy. No one says when it comes to the mind-brain identity theory that we're explaining neural states in terms of consciousness. No, the idea is we're fitting consciousness to the brain. You're saying the same thing here. We're fitting intentionality to consciousness. No yeah. one would say yeah. We've established that you are a strong phenomenal intentionality theorist. You're an identity phenomenal intentionality theorist. Now, let's get deeper into the deep nature of mm -hmm. intentional contents. What is this distinction between the aspect version of phenomenal intentionality theory and the relational version? Okay, great. Uh, so the relation view of intentionality in general, and then you can combine this with the phenomenal intentionality theory to get a relational version of the phenomenal intentionality theory. Um, so yeah. the relation view says that intentional states are relations to items that exist distinctly from them, items existing uh, that have an existence of their own, a life of their own. And these items are their contents. So these items could be concrete things in the world. Uh, they could be abstract properties, abstract propositions sets of possible worlds, and then intentionality is a matter of getting yourself appropriately related to the right ones. And that's what it is to have uh, an intentional state. And what's the content of your intentional state? It's that thing that you're related to. That's the deep nature of that content. Right. The aspect view, instead, is the view that intentionality is a matter of having intentional states with certain integral aspects, which are properties, so having intentional states that have certain properties, 
um, or properties of properties, or maybe just the intentional state itself, or constituents of any of these um, any of these kinds of properties that we mentioned. So, anyways, these are our contents. Yeah. So, one way to see the difference is on the relation view, contents have a life of their own. They exist independently and or distinctly, at least, of being represented. Um, whereas on the aspect view, they're just part of our representation uh, of our representing. Yeah, so I think one way of helping to clarify this distinction is bringing the distinction between internalism and externalism about content explicitly into the picture. So my understanding is that the relational view is typically construed as an externalist view about mental content, whereas the aspect view is typically typically construed as an internalist view about mental content. But uh, as you note in the book, this internalism-externalism distinction doesn't map on completely neatly to the relational aspect distinction. But first, what is this distinction between internalism and externalism about content? And why is the internalist view, uh, or sorry, why is the aspect view most naturally construed in an internalist light? Yeah, so, okay, internalism is the view that what a subject represents is determined solely by her intrinsic properties, by how she is from the skin in. So on this picture, um, uh, this isn't exactly the same claim, but um, a natural extension is that intrinsic duplicates, molecule for molecule duplicates, uh, represent in the same way. So you and your molecule for molecule twin uh, right. represent in the same way. You have the same contents. Whereas externalism is a view that what a subject represents is at least partly determined by her environment. So uh, take you the way that you are in your present environment you represent certain contents. Maybe if we move you to a different environment or if you existed all your life in a different environment, you would represent a different set of contents or at least some of your contents would differ. So mm -hmm. that's internalism and externalism. It's not exactly the same distinction as the, the relation view and the aspect view. It's a distinction having to do with what determines which contents you represent and not whether, what, uh, not whether representing itself, these contents, um, is a relational fact about you. So for example, you could have a, um, an internalist relation view um, mm -hmm. that basically says what you, uh, that basically says representing is a matter of being related to something, maybe an abstract proposition or a bunch of abstract properties or something like that. Um, but which abstract proposition or whatever your content is going to be you're related to depends on how you are from, your, from the skin in, on your intrinsic properties. And intrinsic duplicates represent the same abstract content. Mm. So they represent alike, even though intentionality is a relation. And David Bourget, Adam Pouts, and Frank Jackson have views kind of like that. Right. And so again, how would you make sense of there being an externalist aspect view? So you just noted how there can be an, eternal, an internalist relationist view, which philosophers do actually subscribe to. But this externalist mm -hmm. aspect view, my understanding is it's coherent, mm -hmm. but it's not that uh, appealing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you think that what you represent depends on your environment, so you're an externalist, uh, but you don't identify the content that you're representing with some item in your environment or some item um, beyond your in intentional states, you know, some abstract thing, then you could have an externalist aspect view. So, um, so yeah, so representing is, is not a matter of being related to some distinctly existing content, but what you're representing depends on facts about, about facts beyond your skin. So it's right. really one way to see the, the distinction 
um, is, is, uh, is by looking at what contents are on these different pictures. On one picture, they are dependent existence. That's the aspect view. Contents are just, they, they don't have a life of their own. They're not substances in the Aristotelian sense, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but on the relation view, they do have a life of their own. And then you get to go around representing by getting hooked up to them. So they might be abstract things. They might be uh, concrete things in the world. Uh, and they can exist unrepresented. And that's a potential advantage of the relational view, to my understanding, over the aspect view, in that it does allow contents to have a life of their own, and it allows you to hook up to the external world, so you're actually in touch with the external world. When it comes to the aspect internalist version of it, there's this worry of skepticism, right? If our contents are just these aspects in our mind, then it seems like we're disconnected from the world in a troubling way, and we can never know whether we stand in relations to an understandable external reality. So what do you do with this problem of skepticism that the aspect view poses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one way to put it is the relation view gets you connected to the world beyond the mind at the level of content, uh, mm -hmm. but the aspect view doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. right. um, so how do you get connected to the world? Well, my suggestion is that you get connected to the world, if you do, at the level of truth and reference. So mm -hmm. um, your contents are, are yours, they're, they're, um, they're aspects of your own mental states, they're not things in the world um, having a life of their own, um, but these contents can nonetheless refer to things beyond you or be made true by things beyond you, so they can still be answerable to the world. And I have a, a story about how that might work. Yeah, so um, there are different briefly, stories you can tell, but I have a favorite story. Let me hear the story. Because I don't want to be trapped in the skepticism. Or too yeah, deep. definitely. And I, and I used to think that, that we were trapped in our minds like that. So I'm, I'm really glad I don't think that anymore. It's, it's not a happy place to be. Well, how do we um, get there? Because I feel trapped. Okay. <laughs> okay, let me start by saying, um, by, by describing the view that I don't like. Um, in order to contrast my view with that, that view that I don't like. So the view I don't like says that, look, you can just combine the aspect theoretic version of Pitt with some independent theory of truth and reference. Um, let's just focus on reference for now. So, so say like a causal theory of reference. So you've got these aspects of your mind, they're caused by things in the world, they refer to their causes or their reliable causes or their causes via a particular kind of causal relation, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a similarity theory they refer to whatever they're similar to in the relevant respects. Or you could even have a primitive uh, reference relation that you just throw in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically you tack on some independent theory of truth and reference. Um, so the reason I don't like this view is that it makes what we refer to wholly involuntary. It's not up to us what we refer to. So for example, it might end up connecting us through reference to things that we wouldn't intuitively count as our reference. Right. So if you take the causal interpretation of that, the reference is established by the causal relation. The causal mm -hmm. relation isn't something that you can voluntarily control. It's outside of your mental powers as, as an intentional agent or something like that. Right, right. And it might connect you to things that, that don't really satisfy your referential intentions. So maybe right. it connects your identical color contents to surface reflectance properties. So even if those aren't the contents of your perceptual experiences of colors, they end up being the reference of your perceptual experience of colors. They might even make your perceptual experiences of colors true, 
even though what you're thinking about is these identic, what you're, what you're perceptually experiencing are these identic color contents. So that seems <laughs> to... So it's um, similar to the mismatch to, problem in a way. Yeah, yeah. The worry. Um, it's different, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, key, the key bit of the worry is, is that it's, in, it's not up to you. It's involuntary uh, right. what you refer to. And um, that's just not the kind of reference that I'm looking for. When I'm worried about reference, I want to get at the things that, that I'm trying to get at, not some random thing that is causally related to me or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I think instead we need to look for what we might call a voluntaristic theory of truth and reference, one on which our reference or our truth makers, or at least our conditions of truth and reference, so what would make our, uh, our contents true or refer to some object, um, is up to us. So, so what these things are is up to us. And I think that's a little bit vague and fuzzy, uh, um, but I think that's good enough to, to get an idea of what uh, what would count as a voluntaristic way of getting at our reference and truth makers and so on. So yes. then I think there are, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, this connects to what you said in the cognitive phenomenology conference, where there is this kind of visceral sense that as intentional agents, we do have the power to flag what we're referring to in our own minds, right? There might be some intentional content in my mind. And, and I want to say, okay, what, when I'm, Talking about that intentional content, I'm referring to this. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about that intentional content. And even if that self-tagging goes against the public language understanding of that intentional content, I still have that power as an agent to flag it and refer to it in the way that I want to refer to it. I thought yeah. It, yeah, you said like you're offended by externalists, which are trying to they're trying to kind of creep into your mind and tell you what things they're referring to when they have no right to do so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, some. This is very metaphorical, but I believe that we're we're the author of our own contents and our semantic features. Right. Um, and if we don't at least countenance some content attribution or uh, referent or truthmaker attribution, um, then it's not really ours. It's not really part of our uh, our psychological states, not the ones that we care about, at least. So it's not really part of of our minds that are relevant to us as agents, as persons from an epistemic perspective, even from a moral perspective, uh, really, uh, uh, we have to, in some sense, target our contents. The world can't just come in and say, oh, you're causally related to this, so that's what you're representing, or that's what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, again, just zooming out for one second, we're talking about the relationship between the aspect and the relational version of phenomenal intentionality. One potential ver worry for the aspect version is this worry of skepticism. We're completely disconnected from the external world. You are now explaining how the aspect view allows us to be connected to the external world by articulating your particular view of truth and reference. And in particular, you hold this voluntaristic view. And that might allow us to kind of break free from the confines or prison of our mind, even on this aspect view. Is that a fair characterization? I just want to make yeah, sure we don't Yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, I agree with that. And I guess I would also add to that that, um, that I don't think it's a deal breaker if, in fact, uh, the aspect theoretic version of Pitt does disconnect you from the world, and there is no such thing as external world truth and reference. So I think mm -hmm. it would be nice in that it would be a desire-satisfying virtue uh, of, of the view if it did connect us to the external world. That'd be nice. I want that. Um, mm -hmm. But unless we have some independent reason to think that we are thus connected to the external world, then it's not a truth-indicating virtue. So I don't think... Um, uh, I don't think it's an objection to the view that it disconnects us from the external world, that it leads to this kind of 
solipsistic uh, picture of what we can talk about, think about, refer to, and so on. That said, I do think that it can allow for a kind of um, uh, connection to the external world through truth and reference. Mm -hmm. And back to where we were in our discussion, uh, I think the way that has got to go is this voluntaristic way. So I think there's got to be, I think that's what what our picture has got to look like. Otherwise, it's not what we're looking for when we're looking for truth and reference. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, so there, yeah. Well, did you want to end? Because I was about to bring up another question. Oh, well, I just wanted to to sketch, because uh, that was just a kind of commentary on your bringing us back to the discussion. I want yes. to go back to the discussion uh, yeah. where I was, I was going to suggest that, that I think there are these uh, clearly voluntaristic ways that, that we can um, um, get truth and reference. So one, one way is by acquaintance. So um, right. we're acquainted with things like experiences, maybe properties of our experience, aspects of our experience. And when we're acquainted with something, um, you might think you can single it out as your reference. You can be like, aha, that's what I'm thinking about. So it's not just your content, what you're thinking in, but um, but it's the thing that you're picking out in in the world, um, the internal world in this case. It's right. So if I'm looking at like something that's blue or something like that, I can kind of intentionally flag that just via the acquaintance, the direct acquaintance I have with that blue percept. I can intentionally flag yeah. it agent and say, I'm referring to that. Thing. Yes, this is a voluntaristic way of referring to your own internal states, because these, I think, are the only things you're acquainted with. Your right. own internal states, their properties, maybe some relations between internal states, like similarity or difference relations between them. Uh, and there's some, there's definitely a further story that needs to be told about how this kind of uh, reference by acquaintance works. So maybe it's a kind of inner demonstration Maybe it's a kind of embedding in a higher order thought of the right sort. Maybe it's paying a certain special kind mm-hmm. of attention to it. Uh, there are different views here in the yeah. area, but uh, I think something like that can be worked out for at least internal world reference um, by acquaintance. So reference right. to things inside your own consciousness, but so that, that doesn't get us to the external world yet. Right, right, right. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So how do you get to the external world? Um, then I think there, there are two other clearly voluntaristic ways um, of, of referring to things beyond the mind. One is by description. So as a scriptivist, um, um, we'll have it. We might form a description uh, made out of contents that picks something out. Um, and, uh, and another way is by general criteria. So you might specify maybe general criteria, maybe less general criteria of reference. So for example, you might specify that all your perceptual contents refer to whatever causes them. So now we're bringing in causation again, but we're bringing it in in a voluntaristic way. So mm. you might intend to refer to the causes of your perceptual experiences and have this blanket intention that applies to any perceptual experience. Mm. Then your identic color contents might indeed refer to surface reflectance profiles, but in a voluntaristic way, thanks to your own referential intentions. So, so you have the power, I think, to do that. Right. So you're saying... Yeah, I'm referring to whatever causes this, but I'm choosing as an agent to refer to that. So it's my choice to refer to the causal relation. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually an externalist um, about about reference and conditions of reference, um, as well as about derived contents, but in a way that uh, that satisfies the spirit of internalism. So you can choose to use your uh, your contents and um, you can choose to refer in a way that defers to the environment or defers to your linguistic community or whatever, but you have to mm-hmm. choose to. Mm-hmm. And you still have that power as an agent. Yeah. Right. 
You okay. have to choose to or not to. It's not like there's some causal relation that takes over and makes you refer to your right. cause. Now you're referring to this. Okay. Yeah. What you want to or not. So before leaving this conceptual territory, I just wanted to bring the inventory problem into the mm -hmm. picture here. Right. Yeah. So we've been talking about your response to the problem of skepticism and the aspect view faces. One problem that the relational view faces is this so-called inventory problem. So what is what is the inventory problem? Yeah, well, um, so according to the relation view, what you can represent, your contents, your possible contents, is limited by what exists in the world um, independently of you. So um, if you think that contents are concrete things, then you're limited to the concrete world, to what's in the concrete world. Right. Um, the inventory problem is a problem that, that many people have noted that the concrete world is not enough to get you all the contents, <laughs> to get yeah. you all the contents that, that uh, we have pre-theoretic reason to think that we represent. So the concrete world doesn't contain all the right objects with all the right superficial characters to capture the, sorry, to capture the superficial characters of the contents that we know we represent. Um, so some people give examples like Santa Claus and Pegasus. Um, there, these, there aren't concrete objects that, uh, that capture these contents. Maybe we can get around this version of the problem by saying that your Santa Claus content is a complex content composed of other items that do exist, like, um, like redness, being human, uh, being Christmassy or whatever, and then that's what you bear a relation to. But I don't think that's so plausible when it comes to uninstantiated properties. So let's go back to colors. Um, <laughs> if the case of colors is indeed a mismatch problem, as I suggested, a mismatch case as I've suggested, then right. our perceptual color experiences don't match anything that they can plausibly be said to track in our environment. And that leads pretty quickly to color anti-realism. So there's, there's nothing, uh, there's no Edenic redness out there in the concrete world. Right. And Edenic redness arguably can't be constructed out of other properties that are instantiated in the concrete world. So now it looks like you're going to be committed to some uninstantiated properties, which leads you to a kind of platonic view of properties or some other non-concrete entities that are going to capture these contents. Right. Um, is that a problem? Uh, you might think that leads to an overly inflated ontology. And if there's no other reason to accept this ontology, then maybe if we can get away uh, from this commitment uh, by adopting an aspect view, then um, then maybe that's, that's a good thing. Um, but I think it also suggests that the relation view is kind of on the wrong track. The, the, the mind shows no signs of being limited in what it can think by some pre-existing inventory of things that exist. Yeah. So you start off with this intuitive idea of when I think about my mother, I'm, uh, my content is my mother herself. That sounds good. But then turns out you can represent things that have no, uh, no uh, matching things in the concrete world. And now all of a sudden you're talking about platonic things and these are your contents. And you might think, well, what we can think of is not limited by the things that we know that exist um, independently of any, uh, any, any theory of intentionality. Um, in order to accommodate all the cases we need to, we have to posit this whole slew of non-concrete entities just to play the role of contents and yeah. not do anything else. And that's a little bit controversial. Some people think they might do something else, but let's say they don't do anything else. And that seems kind of ad hoc. So the fact right. that the relation view is driven to these extremes in order to account for what are actually everyday cases of intentionality 
uh, yeah. suggests that it's on the wrong track. I mean, we're barking up the wrong tree. And instead, we should just say that our minds create their own contents. They're just aspects of our inter- internal states. Right. Uh, they don't depend on what exists beyond them in order to represent these contents. Yeah, so let me just try to summarize what you just said to make sure I understand. So the relational view, what are you related to? What are these content? One potential answer is, well, concrete particulars in the world, right? I'm related, when I'm representing my mother, I'm related to my actual mother. But then that runs into the problem or it runs into the fact that, I like the way you put it, the the representational capacities of the mind aren't held hostage to the inventory of pre-existing concrete particulars, right? So there, there are these things that we can represent which don't correspond to any concrete existing thing out there. So what is the relate? What is the relator there? There you're dipping now into this ontological pool of abstract uh, universals in order to solve that inventory problem, but that's a potentially objectionable insofar as you think that these abstract universals shouldn't exist or bloat our ontology in the way that you suggested. How do you feel in particular about the existence of these abstract universals? Are you, are you very wary just in general as a philosopher to posit such abstract properties? I mean, I'm okay with abstract things that are, that are, uh, that are, I mean, I'm, I'm no metaphysician. Um, so I haven't, you know, really worked on this stuff from that perspective, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical that we need to, to, uh, to accept abstract objects that are not rooted in concrete reality. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, that taking contents to be such things raises a whole slew of questions, not just, um, not just these, these, these words concerning ontological bloat, but also concerning how we get to be related to these abstracta, how they get to make us represent how is it that being related to something abstract makes us entertain some content, which seems like a kind of concrete psychological state of affairs representing a content? And this is kind of an argument that Uriah Kriegel gives. Yeah. Intentionality is a concrete phenomenon. So how can it be a matter of being related to something abstract? I get that intuition. Um, and I, and I, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure they're even helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not convinced that we need them. Definitely not convinced that we need them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way you could say this, that the, look, the aspect view, it just does more justice to the creative power of the mind because we don't have to appeal to these concrete particulars or abstract universals in order to accommodate just, again, the excessive representational capacity that the mind possesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think we've now kind of traversed uh, the conceptual landscape of phenomenal intentionality theory We've established that you are a strong phenomenal intentionality theorist, an identity theorist, and an aspect theorist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I thought we could now end by talking a little bit about panpsychism. Yeah, so as we mentioned prior, your particular version of phenomenal intentionality theory dovetails kind of nicely with panpsychism, and I'm also a fan of panpsychism here. So first, what is panpsychism, and can you explain in a little more detail why panpsychism combined with the phenomenal intentionality theory leads to a pretty coherent, nice picture of the mind? Yeah, yeah. So panpsychism um, is sometimes taken to be the view that consciousness is fundamental. It's not reducible to something else um, and ubiquitous, kind of all over the place. Um, right. So 
Yeah, so so one reason why it dovetails nicely with uh, the phenomenal intentionality theory is that, um, as we already said, it kind of uh, gives you a picture of consciousness and its place in nature um, that completes the story of intentionality. So intentionality appeals to consciousness. What's that? Well, panpsychism gives you a story about what that is, and um, um, and therefore a more fundamental story of what intentionality ends up being. Uh, but there's another reason why I think that panpsychism dovetails nicely with uh, with the kind of um, aspect theoretic version of the phenomenal intentionality theory, which is that it gives us a good basis from which to make the kind of intrinsic nature's argument that Galen Strawson, I'm sure you're you're aware, um, and others yeah. have made. Um, yeah. So prop that up. What is the intrinsic nature argument? Yeah. Well, so here's here's how I see it. Um, so start off with the aspect view version of Pitt. So that's true. Um, if so, then all we're really aware of is our own mental aspects, so features of our minds. Um, that doesn't mean we can't refer to things beyond, but this is all we've kind of, we're acquainted with or really aware of. Um, right. So as, as we discussed earlier, you might think this leads to a kind of solipsism, um, the mm -hmm. view that all that exists is my mind and its features. Uh, but I think it's reasonable to think that there exists more than that. And one kind of standard reason for that is that our experiences are fairly regular and predictable and law governed. So every time I have an experience of entering this room, um, really mundane example, um, I have an experience as of this chair and so on. So mm -hmm. why is that? Well, I think the best explanation is that there exists something beyond my mind that causes at least some of my experiences. So maybe my maybe there's internal mental causation too. So your mind causes some of your experiences, maybe your thoughts or whatever. Um, but there's something outside your mind that also causes certain of your experiences. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so there are these bits of reality beyond our mind that correspond to some of our mental aspects. Uh, okay, but what's the nature of these things beyond our mind? Well, we don't really know for sure. We're not acquainted with these things beyond our mind. They're part of a, if you will, a Kantian noumenal world um, with a phenomenal world being our own mind. But one thing we do know is that my phenomenal brain, so my, my brain experience, uh, right. so experiences of my own brain, if I were to, to crack over my skull and, and experience my, have these brain experiences, um, correspond to my mind, to my consciousness. So right. we... we have this kind of correspondence between the phenomenal world and noumenal reality, between phenomenal brains and noumenal minds. So right. then you might reasonably infer that other phenomenal brains correspond to other minds. Um, and um, I think also reasonably that other aspects of our mind, um, so other, other of our experiences, correspond to other bits of mentality that are beyond us. Other, other bits of the noumenal world are also, um, are also more minds, more consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, you might think consciousness is the only reality we really know of. Um, yeah. and, and we know that whatever is beyond us also, um, um, in at least some cases, corresponds to consciousness, and we kind of generalize from that. And so that leads to panpsychism and a particular version of panpsychism a kind of Russellian monist panpsychism, um, yeah. which is sometimes put as the view that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of matter. Um, of, you know, the, the numinal stuff beyond us is just made out of consciousness. Yeah, and that's that Russellian monist version is really the version that 
resonates the most with me because I think that that resilient modest interpretation of panpsychism uh, potentially retains the advantages of traditional physicalism and dualism while avoiding their respective weaknesses, right? One of the main okay. potential problems with physicalism, the idea that consciousness can be reduced to the brain as we understand it, um, or as we might understand it with the completed science of the mind, is that this hard problem of consciousness. It doesn't seem like consciousness can be reduced to dual matter. Dual matter. So panpsychism avoids the hard problem because it's not trying to reduce consciousness to something that it's not. But mm -hmm. it also avoids this, or potentially avoids this problem with dualism. Dualism, consciousness is something over and above the physical world. But now you have this problem of causation. Well, okay, if it's this thing kind of floating over and above the physical world, how is it that the mind causally interacts with the physical world? Because it seems like, one, the physical world is causally closed. So if you think that mental states are distinct from physical states, but yet they causally impugn on the physical world, then you might be forced to endorse overdetermination, or you might violate the causal closure of the physical world. So this is, there's this big problem of causation when it comes to dualism. And my sense is that Rossilian monist panpsychism can potentially avoid that problem as well by injecting consciousness into the causal nexus of the physical world by, by stating that it constitutes the intrinsic nature of the world, right? And then just to say a few more things in favor of Brazilian monism, one of the basic motivations is that when you actually think about what physics describes, when it describes its fundamental entities, it's just describing those entities in terms of spatio-temporal relations or dispositions. It's not saying what quarks or what electrons are in and of themselves, but fundamental physics defines these things in terms of how they're related to other entities within a spatio-temporal network. So you could say that physics just describes the structure of the physical world it doesn't say what the physical world is in and of itself. It doesn't say anything about the intrinsic nature of the physical world. And insofar as you're inclined to say that the physical world must have an intrinsic nature, one good candidate is consciousness, because it seems like we're directly acquainted with the intrinsic nature of consciousness. So that's just me regurgitating the, a lot of the basic reasons that are propped up in favor of Rossilian monist panpsychism and why I think it's such an appealing view um but yeah sorry go ahead yeah you want to respond um no i mean i i basically mostly agree with that um yeah i guess i wanted to to, to point out that panpsychism really i think should be thought of as a kind of idealism so so there's this kind of idea that uh okay we're just going to take the physical world as um as physics describe it describes it and then we're going to find where there's a hole in it and we're going to put consciousness in there. So you know, <laughs> don't worry. We're not, you know, we're not messing with the physical. Um, we're just sticking consciousness where there's already a gap. Um, right. Maybe you can solve some problems uh, for you physicalists. So that's great. It's your intrinsic natures that you're looking for. Uh, but, but I feel like this way of, of thinking about panpsychism, while not wrong, I don't really disagree with it. I feel like it, uh, it's a bit of a hangover from physicalism, right? So we, we oh, really yeah. like physical descriptions, but consciousness doesn't fit in it. Where can we fit it in? Oh, here's the gap. Let's put it there. Okay, problem solved. We can still be good physicalists, sort of, with this expanded sense. But really, I think panpsychism should be thought of as a kind of idealism. I mean, basically, everything is mental. Being itself, if you will, is consciousness. The only thing that really exists is mental stuff that's doing stuff. And 
or what's physics then? What is, what is what do physical descriptions describe? Um, they describe what mental stuff does. So right. instead of saying um, um, the, the slogan, the, the common Marcellian monist panpsychist slogan is uh, is often put like this: "The mental is the intrinsic nature of the physical." Instead of saying that, I think we should say. The physical is the causal structural profile of the mental, or even more metaphorically, or, or metaphorically, um, you could say the physical is the shadow of the mental. Yeah, I like that terminology a lot. Right. So the the way that I framed my articulation of Brazilian monism was giving too much credence to that physicalist worldview because I was almost implicitly assuming the priority of the physical world and saying. Yeah, no, you guys are right. There's this physical world discovering the nature of it. I'm just plugging in consciousness to fill in the gaps. That kind of does open the way to this God of the gaps response, just as some philosophers of religion will say, well, you physicalists haven't understood, or you scientists haven't understood this particular phenomenon about the universe. I'm just going to plug in God there and say, well, that's where God comes in. In a similar way, we're mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, you guys haven't understood this particular aspect of the universe. Let me just plug in consciousness there. But just again, in framing it in that light, you're giving too much credence to that physicalist picture. If you really want to be a panpsychist, then you have to admit in the way that you just suggested that it is an idealist view and we're, the, it's, consciousness is prioritized and the mental comes before the physical. So you can't say that we're just plugging consciousness in. No, consciousness constitutes the essence of being prior to the physical. So no, I think it's good yeah, that you brought yeah, that exactly. You need to shake me out of that materialistic way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really common in a lot of the the literature on um, on panpsychism. Um, kind of, it's panpsychism is portrayed as a kind of minimal departure from physicalism that allows us to, um, if we could please, fit consciousness in into our picture too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I mean, it's the same view. It's just a different different way of thinking about um, the same view. Right. Yeah. But so one I, one classic problem for panpsychism is despite these purported advantages, it does face what's called the combination problem, which is usually seen as the main problem for panpsychism. What is the combination problem? And also, I guess I'll just bring this up now. In a recent paper, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's coming in the coming out in the Rutledge Handbook of Panpsychism, you suggest that the combination problem for panpsychism isn't really a unique problem for the panpsychist, but it's a problem that other views in the philosophy of mind face as well. So you say the combination problem is a problem for everyone. I think, yeah, I think that's the title too. Um, right. But yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So first, what is the combination problem? Okay. So the combination problem is specifically a problem for a certain version of panpsychism, combinatorial panpsychism, um, which by the way, Luke Roloff does a great job defending, but I think it, it's wrong at work. the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. me too. Um, Anyways, this version of panpsychism states that experiences such as our own are made up out of more fundamental experiences. So it tries to explain experiences like our own by positing other experiences that are more fundamental um, and that constitute them. So it's kind of a reductive picture of experiences like our own. They're reduced to not just bare physical stuff, but uh, but more experience. Right. Okay. So. I think this is a very attractive picture. It's a very elegant picture, um, but but I, I don't think it's right. And the reason I don't think it's right is because of this combination problem. So that's the problem of explaining just how fundamental experiences combine to form experiences like our own. 
Mm. Um, and the problem seems especially challenging since it's hard to see how mental things can combine to form more than just mere aggregates of mental things. So how yeah. do you get from having two fundamental experiences to having this non-fundamental experience, a single unified non-fundamental experience, which might be a distinct entity? So it's a whole new thing, a new, new experience with a wholly novel, phenomenal character, what it's like to have that experience might not just be what it's like to have the one experience and have the other one, um, but there might be some new phenomenal character present. Um, it might belong to a brand new subject. So maybe the subject of the experience um, is this new subject. So presumably we're not fundamental subjects, um, yeah. but some kind of um, higher level subjects. Okay, so why don't you just, when you combine experiences and you put them together, why don't you just get a mere aggregate of fundamental experiences with whatever phenomenal characters they have and whatever subjects they have? How do you get this new thing? How do you get our experiences from all this? Yeah, so one way Sam Coleman puts it is it's a problem of mental chemistry, essentially. Yeah. When it comes to physical combination in the world, we can see in an intelligible way how these fundamental physical things can add up to create these unified macroscopic physical objects. We have no sense of such an intelligent, intelligible explanation when it comes to mental chemistry, when it comes to the problem of combining little tiny micro-conscious entities to formulate this unified macro consciousness, which constitutes human consciousness. Um, um, but according to your paper, you say, well, actually, this isn't really a unique problem. There are other views in the philosophy of mind that face a similar combination problem. You give a bunch of different examples. You talk about mental structure. I thought we could just hone in on phenomenal unity because I'm particularly interested in phenomenal unity. So mm -hmm. you say, when it comes to phenomenal unity, this view or this phenomenon also features features a combination problem, which is essentially analogous to the combination problem that panpsychism pan faces, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, what, what do you mean there? What is phenomenal unity, I guess, first of all? What do you mean? Yeah, there? well, just taking a step back. Yeah, so my paper argues that the combination problem is a problem for anyone, anyone, right. um, panpsychists and non-panpsychists alike. So even if you're not a panpsychist, there seem to be cases of mental combination, of mental things coming together to form more than mere aggregates. Um, and these cases are just as hard to explain intelligibly as the case of panpsychist mental combination that the combinatorial panpsychist needs. Okay, so so one the one that you wanted to focus on was the problem of explaining the unity of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so the unity of consciousness is basically the phenomenon of uh, of distinct experiences being experienced together, of there being something it's like to have not just each experience, but to have them both together, of them being, say, um, uh, co-conscious, I think this is very Dainton's terminology, or present in the same phenomenal field. Um, so what's up with that? So I might have a phenomenal experience of seeing red and a phenomenal experience of tasting chocolate. Um, and there's a further experience of having these experiences together. So somehow they're unified and that makes an experiential difference. So how do you explain that further experience that, that constitutes the experiential difference of experiencing them together? Um, and it looks like what you need is a kind of mental combination. You get two experiences, you put them together in the right way, and then you end up with this new holistic or this new experiential whole, something like that. So how does that work? Right. Yeah. So again, the idea there is when you're talking about the unity of consciousness, 
there seem to be different parts of my conscious experience. Right now, I'm hearing sounds. I'm seeing certain things, both in the center and the peripheral of my vision. There are these different parts, and and I'm experiencing these different parts perhaps separately, but there's also a sense in which I'm experiencing them all together. And to translate it into the what it's likeness language of consciousness, it -hmm. seems like holistically, there's something it's like not to just experience these parts of consciousness separately, but there's an experience what it's likeness to experience them together. And it's Mm -hmm. that togetherness, that felt togetherness that we're referring to when we talk about the unity of consciousness. Now, one, so there's a kind of combination there of experiences, just like there is when it comes to the panpsychism combination. Yeah, problem. it looks like there is at least, yeah. It looks like there is. One yeah. potential disanalogy that you note in your paper is that, well, when it comes to the unity of consciousness, the combination problem, you're talking about combining different macro experiences or experiences of human consciousness to form a further macro experience. When you're talking about panpsychism, you're talking about these micro experiences, right? Um, conscious experiences of fundamental entities combining to yield a macro experience. So there's a micro-macro combination as opposed to a macro-macro combination. Mm -hmm. And one might think that that is a relevant disanalogy, at least in the sense that when you're talking about these fundamental um, entities which are conscious, that is a completely alien form of consciousness to us, it seems like. Whereas we understand what macro experiences are, so maybe it's more intelligible to make sense of how they could combine to yield more macro experiences. Maybe not so when it comes to these alien micro experiences. That's just mm-hmm. one uh, potential disanalogy between the two combination problems, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I don't see there being a difference in kind between the two cases rather than merely a difference in um, in degree. Um, yeah. So in both cases, we've got, uh, we've got experiences that seem to come together to form some new experience. Um, in one case, in the macro case, you here's one, one disanalogy, you've, you've got... You clearly have, I mean, some panpsychists will say something analogous, but some won't. Um, you clearly have access to the constituent experiences mm-hmm. um, as well as the experienced whole. Um, and maybe in the case of panpsychist mental combination, you don't. Uh, but it's not clear why that should make a difference. Um, but my main point in the paper is, is uh, that this kind of combination that you seem to require in order to account for phenomenal unity um, is just as unintelligible as the kind that you need for panpsychism. Um, and, and if so, then what I argue for in the paper is that, if so, then that suggests a kind of ignorance response to the mental combination problem. Um, so there must be something we're unaware of, something we're ignorant of, some key fact about the nature of mentality and mental combination, such that were we to know it, we would understand how phenomenal unity works, how different experiences can come together to be phenomenally unified. We would expand how we, we would understand how these other non-panpsychist cases of mental combination work. And the hope is, since these uh, since since these cases are involved many of the same elements of the panpsychist combination problem, we would understand how panpsychist mental combination works too if we had this missing piece of the puzzle. So the mm-hmm. fact that there are these apparent cases of mental combination independent of panpsychism uh, leads to a kind of optimism about solving the combination problem for panpsychism. You might argue, argue, look, we know that mental combination occurs. So if we can't understand how it works, it's because we're ignorant ignorant of something, not because there's no mental combination. 
Right. That, that's part of the point of the analogy, right? Like when it comes to phenomenal mm -hmm. unity, we know that the combination goes through. We know that this is a real thing where the component experiences do yield this unified experience. So we know that combination is possible even if we don't understand how it could be possible. So because we know it's possible in these other domains, that gives us reason to think that with respect to panpsychism, even if we can't maybe even ever in principle understand the mechanics behind mental chemistry, it, it gives us, as you say, an optimistic reason to believe that combination would be possible. Uh, I wanted yeah. to get your perspective. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, which is what I argued in the paper, but um, the paper was written a few years ago, and it took a while for this volume to come out, and I've since yeah. changed my mind. Um, now, now I think yeah. that mental combination is not, in fact, possible, um, that neither panpsychist nor non-panpsychist mental combination is possible. And I came to, to think that by, uh, by worrying a lot about a different case of, of apparent mental combination, the case of intentional structure. So it looks like you can have intentional states that have other intentional states as parts. Um, so you might have a combinatorial view of how that happens. And then I came to think that um, really there's no mode of combination that can give you the differences in contents between, say, uh, say a, an, an objectual content together with a proprietal content and, on the other hand, a propositional content that ascribes a property to the object. So anyways, thinking about the case of, um, of, of apparent mental combination in intentional structure uh, led me to think that actually there's no possible way for mental things to combine in the ways required by, uh, by panpsychism or by combinatorial solutions to these other combination problems. So. I now endorse a kind of non-combinatorial panpsychism. Yeah, so I also endorse a version of a non-combinatorial panpsychism, I think. Um, before we get to your particular version, I just want to get your thoughts on cosmopsychism, which is a version of non-combinatorial panpsychism. So as you note in the paper, there, there are ways to avoid the combination problem. When it comes to the unity of consciousness, you might take a holistic conception of of consciousness where it's not that consciousness is composed of these different parts that somehow combine to yield a unified experience. Rather, it's that there is only one unified conscious experience. That's the one fundamental thing. And what we call parts are actually different aspects of the experience. So there is really no combination prior to what it seems like so you can take that holistic perspective with respect to phenomenal unity. You can also take that holistic perspective with respect to panpsychism. Again, if panpsychism is just the bare bones view that consciousness exists at the fundamental level of reality, there are different conceptions of fundamentality. A bottom-up conception of fundamentality says that the fundamental things are these little tiny quirks or whatever the current fundamental postulates are of physics, right? Those are the fundamental things. The universe is constructed out of those things in a bottom-up way, that conception of fundamentality, when conjoined with panpsychism, gives way to this combination problem where you're combining all these little conscious experiences. But if you take a top-down conception of fundamentality and combine it with panpsychism, then you have the idea that the only one f true fundamental thing is the universe itself. So if you're saying that consciousness exists at the fundamental level, that leads to this cosmopsychist view where the universe itself is conscious and all of us humans who have macro consciousness, we're just different aspects of the universe. So this cosmopsychism view 
is to my understanding a version of panpsychism which avoids the combination problem by saying that there's just this one universal consciousness we're just all aspects of it there's no mental chemistry that needs to be done what's your basic perspective there when it comes to cosmopsychism okay so i think once we uh, reject combinatorial panpsychism there are different options still left on the table and one of them is cosmopsychism on right. which you've as you've as you've described it you've got this cosmic experience and our experience is uh, a part um, or an aspect uh, of that experience that cosmic experience um, which itself might have other parts and aspects um, another and I think that's that's a possible view on on the table and Philip Goff has has defended it really nicely. Um, another kind of view is a kind of mid-level panpsychism that takes experiences like our own to themselves be fundamental um, in that they're, they're neither reducible to something um, larger than them or something smaller than them, mm. um, but nonetheless complex at the same time. So they're still complex in that they have parts or aspects. Uh, so your whole, ex your total experience might have a part corresponding to an experience of a cup, um, a part corresponding to um, a smell or whatever. Um, but it's fundamental in that your experience is not nothing over and above those parts combined in a certain way. So basically, I think this kind of mid-level panpsychism and cosmopsychism are the views that are, are left on the table. Yeah, I think for me personally, I'm somewhere between both of those views in, the ter in terms of I don't know which one to endorse. On the one hand, I like cosmopsychism, first because it dovetails really nicely with a lot of traditional views about consciousness in Eastern philosophy, like Buddhists will talk about the one and there being this universal consciousness. So it actually dovetails nicely with those views. I don't know if that's a necessarily a reason to endorse it, but, um, and I just kind of like aesthetically, I suppose, the vision of us being ripples in a cosmic sea of consciousness. But I don't know whether cosmopsychism actually can solve the, well, it avoids the combination problem, but it also potentially conf is confronted with this decomposition problem, right? So you're saying, mm -hmm. okay, we're all aspects of this universal consciousness, so we're not combining different distinct consciousness to yield a greater consciousness, but now we're decomposing this universal consciousness and making sense of how this universal consciousness can have all of these different aspects to it. And it seems hard to make sense of that decomposition problem from my perspective, partly because it seems like our different macro conscious perspectives are metaphysically isolated in an important way that cosmopsychism might not be able to account for. I can, like, I can never really get into your consciousness and experience what it's like to be you. So it seems like our points of view are, again, distinct in a way that the cosmopsychist view might have trouble making sense of, if that makes sense. So those are kind of my basic thoughts with respect to cosmopsychism. I don't think I've honestly given enough thought to this mid-level view, which you discuss, but I'm definitely very intrigued about it. I don't know if you have any response to any of that, but I'm just kind of yeah. trying to lay out my perspective on the matter. Yeah, I mean, the, the decomposition problem, I'm not sure what to think about it. One way to approach it is to, again, think about cases of non-panpsychist mental complexity, even if they're not cases of mental combination, um, mm. like uh, like the unity of consciousness. So let's say you've got 
a phenomenal experience of um, of seeing red while hearing middle C. Um, do, would it make sense? Would it would it be would it would it be conceivable for there to be a, a kind of a subject of either of these experiences that doesn't experience the other one? Um, does it make sense to say that because that's basically what we are right. um, on Goff's view, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So it doesn't make sense to say that you could you could you could have an experience that's unified with other experiences, but you're not uh, you're not the subject that experiences the unified experience. Um, yeah. So you might think that once once the two experiences are unified, their subjects get to be unified too. So there's no experience of middle C in isolation anymore. So I don't know how to come down on that, but I think that's kind of a an, an more intuitive way of thinking about it. And maybe we can, um, maybe what we think about the unity of consciousness can shed light on whether uh, whether we think the decombination problem can be solved yeah. for cosmopsychism or not. Has there been a lot of or any, for that matter, recent work done on this mid-level view? Because I don't think I've come across this view in my reading of the literature. I think maybe mm -hmm. briefly, but I haven't really delved into it yet. Well, I think emergent panpsychism is one way of, of cashing out this kind of view. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so what so is maybe, emergent panpsychism? Just define that. Um, well, it, I think it commits us to the mid-level view, and maybe it also adds to the view a claim about... Uh, about how you get the fundamental yet complex um, um, phenomenal states, um, um, such as our own, from the more from more fundamental experiences, and the story is going to be causal mm. on the emergent panpsychist view. So there's a causal connection, but not a constitutive connection, as on combinatorial panpsychism. So Bill Seeger and Hedda Hassel-Merck, I think, have views kind of along this line these lines. Right. So in that case, you're saying, yeah, maybe consciousness does exist at the fundamental level of reality, but there is this emergent fundamental macro consciousness, which that fundamental consciousness causes, but doesn't constitute. Yeah. Yeah. And the causal claim is this extra, extra claim, though. I think that is plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, there are lots of problems with this kind of view, um, I'm not sure how bad they are, but that, that's definitely, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that there are no problems with them, with the mm -hmm. view. But, yeah, I, but, well, but personally, I find it very attractive. Yeah, I do too. And it's just, I mean, a lot of times when I have conversations with people in the philosophy of mind and I tell them that I'm partial towards panpsychism, I'll get that notorious incredulous stare. How could you think that consciousness exists everywhere? Are you saying that this table is consciousness? Of course, that's a radical version of panpsychism that most contemporary panpsychists don't endorse. We're not saying mm -hmm. that literally every single thing is conscious when we're saying that consciousness is everywhere. It's not like as if this, again, table is conscious or that bed's conscious. You might endorse that view if you're a panpsychist, but that's a pretty radical construal of it. But again, yeah, I mean, it's the idea would be that it's made of consciousness. Um, but it's it, it's a further claim to say that it has a unified high level consciousness like our own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So putting that radical view aside, I just have trouble seeing how it's so radical of a claim to just endorse the more moderate view of panpsychism because I guess my 
disposition is just to give the incredulous stare right back to someone who's a physicalist and say, well, how could you think that consciousness is reduced to dull matter? That's just as crazy as the idea that consciousness constitutes the fundamental essence of being and and is, is everywhere. In fact, I would say I would argue that it's more crazy, particularly because consciousness is what we're directly acquainted with. Everything is filtered through consciousness, and that includes science. When you're running scientific experiments, they are filtered through viscerally your, your fundamental subjective point of view. So I, now I'm just riffing, trying to explain why I view panpsychism plausible personally. Because even though there has been this panpsychist revolution in the philosophy of mind literature over the past 10 years or so, it is, I think it would be fair to say, a more fringe view in the philosophy of mind. Do you think that's correct? Um, yes, yes, I agree with most of what you said. Um, definitely, it's a more fringe view, though. I think it's it's gaining in popularity. Um, mm -hmm. And and going back to the idea of of you know how how beholden are we to physicalism when we describe our panpsychism, it could yeah. be that part of the reason people try to to construe it as a kind of very minimal departure from standard physicalism that we know and love is because it's such a fringe view. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but I think enough people hold the view that that we can we can think of it as it is as a kind of idealism. Stop um, making concessions <laughs> to those followers of Dennett and whatnot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I got one more question for you, and then I'll let you go. Um, and do you think AI consciousness is possible? That's the basic question. We don't have to get that deep into this. I'm just very interested in AI consciousness in particular. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as you know, I'm not a functionalist about consciousness. So I don't think merely creating an AI that has the same kinds of, that has internal states that play the same kind of functional roles as our internal states is automatically enough for consciousness, especially not for a consciousness like ours. So I think it does matter what you're made of. Right. Uh, and, and part of the reason, I guess, goes back to panpsychism. Um, so, uh, so according to panpsychism, it does matter what you're made of. And insofar as organization matters, it might not be the kind of organization that you're replicating in an AI. Um, so the way I'd approach the question of whether AI consciousness is possible is via panpsychism. So what's the best going panpsychist theory and what does it predict? Uh, so what we need here is a theory that specifies a kind of mental, physical mapping. So we've got these physical descriptions, and they correspond to bits of noumenal mental reality. Mm. Uh, uh, um, so the mental bit is the reality itself, and the physical bit is something like the causal dis dispositional profile that we take mentality to have and that we infer from observed patterns in our own experience, ultimately, at, at the end of the day. Uh, okay, so what we need to know is what sorts of physical states map onto, are the physical shadows of, if you will, yeah. unified conscious states like our own. So we don't right. want to know if an AI is conscious in the way that a table is conscious and that it's made up of consciousness. We already know that because we're panpsychists. But right. <laughs> what we want to know is if, <laughs> is if it has a consciousness like our own, if there's some unified high-level consciousness. And here, basically, the, the way to find out, I think, is to start from our own case um, so our own case where we've, we've got, um, our own consciousness and we know that it maps onto a certain physical description and then try to extrapolate from, from there. And, um, sorry, I don't have the answer as to, you know, what that extrapolation is going to look like, but I think that's what, what we got to do. And by the way, I also think that's, 
that's how we're going to answer the question of, um, of, of what consciousness looks like at the quote unquote fundamental physical level by extrapolating from our own case rather than simply positing um, consciousness of a certain sort of a certain level of simplicity uh, and complexity at that level based on, say, some kind of Rossellian monist, uh, combinatorial panpsychist view. So the only fixed point we've got is in our physical mental mapping is that between uh, our minds and the physical descriptions of our brains. And then all we can do is try to extrapolate from there. I feel as if there might be a paper in what you just said. I mean, obviously you can't provide the explanation. No one can. No one, we don't know what the nature of AI consciousness is yet. But just the, the, the very idea of approaching the question of AI consciousness from the metaphysical perspective of panpsychism, I feel like there might just be a paper there and relating those two, because it seems to me that in most discussions of AI consciousness, people are giving too much credence to that physicalistic point of view, as we've been discussing, and maybe mm-hmm. framing things from the standpoint of panpsychism will actually just constitute kind of a fresh way to look at it. And I just think it's because I, I haven't seen that in any of the stuff that I've read on AI consciousness. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, course, maybe. You have to think it panpsychism is plausible already, right? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, yeah, that's all I got. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I found this to be a very fascinating discussion. Thanks. Me too. Thanks for having me on your show. I think it's really cool. Um, as I said, thanks again for taking the time to chat with me.